see all of you. Glad you're here. Uh, hopefully that was enough time to get to Philippians chapter 4. We will be concluding our study in the book of Philippians today. Uh, as we end the book here, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. As again, we once again turn our attention to how God empowers His people to rejoice. He gives us joy. Philippians 4, we'll begin our reading in verse 10. Hear now the word of the living and true God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for you were in, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm seeking of being in, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned the situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us pray. Take your word, Father. Bury it deeply into our hearts and our minds. Show us clearly what these concluding remarks from Paul to the Philippians mean for us even today. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. They were only there to help, not to hurt, but their, hurt, their, their help turned out to be hurt for them. Paul and his companions entered Philippi in order to preach the gospel and to win souls. And souls they won. Until some no longer approved when Paul and the gospel affected their pocketbook. Accusations came. That was followed by an arrest. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. As if that were not enough, they were dragged into the center of town. They were stripped of their clothing, beaten with rods. Many blows were inflicted. We read in Acts 16 and verse 23. Once they were finished, they were handed over to the jailer. They were put into not just prison, but the prison within the prison. And they were shackled on the, uh, by their feet. Time passes. The events of those days become unforgettable memories. 
a letter is written to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi. And Paul recalls every remembrance from the first day in that place, in Philippi. And what does he say? What is it that Paul remembers? And how does that shape his view of the Philippians? Where does he begin? And what words does he use to describe those memories? Is he angry? Is there angst? Or is he kind of just apathetic to the whole thing? He begins. We looked at this several weeks ago. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in, uh, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Joy? Joy? Paul, the accusations, the incarceration, the beating, the belittling, the dungeon, the shackles. Paul, joy? And notice that joy is coupled with thanksgiving. I thank my God. Paul, how? The book of Philippians is the key to unlocking the secret of facing any and all circumstances with joy. The secret to being even content. Wherever you find yourself, and especially these concluding verses in chapter 4, the, the whole book, all 104 verses, communicate how God, He does empower us. He gives us, even His servants, joy regardless of where we are, where we find ourselves. And these concluding verses explain how God provides through Christ for His people. God provides. In what ways does God provide for His people? For His church, even. God's provision for His people is seen in these concluding verses, and it begins with how God provides strength through Christ verses 10 through 13, we learn about the secret of contentedness, regardless of circumstances. The secret is realizing that Christ's strength is available to Christians. Paul says here that I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. When did Paul learn this lesson? Well, the way this is structured in the original language, it's what's called an aorist tense verb, and it could be uh, understood as, as a snapshot event in the past. And so it could be that what Paul has in mind here, some have suggested it was when Paul became a Christian. That's when he learned that he can be content in whatever situation he finds himself in. One writer said it, it broke upon him at his conversion, and his life is the outworking of that lesson. Another suggests that Paul is actually talking about his, his whole life experience, his whole lived experience as, as a single unit. That's a way this could be understood as well. Either way, Paul says, I've learned. I've learned sufficiency. 
for every situation, that that kind of sufficiency is possible only in Christ. So Paul, in the school of life, he has come to know. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He comes to know. But this sufficiency is not self-sufficiency. How this sounds today is, you know, you're enough. You're enough. But that kind of psychosocial babble is anathema for the Christian. Self-sufficiency is blasphemy to God. What Paul is talking about here is not self-sufficiency. He's talking about God-sufficiency. It begins with the humble realization that contrary to popular cultural belief, you are not enough. That's where true contentedness begins. But then notice Paul says, in whatever situation, verse 11, and then verse 12, in any and every circumstance. Really, Paul? Every circumstance? Whatever the situation? I mean, did did you miswrite that? Or, Or maybe, okay, fine, Paul, in your day, in the first century, have you seen 21st century America? How could we possibly be content in circumstances and situations today? Well, we know, of course, that behind the hand of Paul is the hand of God. That God the Holy Spirit knew that this was not only true in Paul's day, but it's true across time and space and reaches all the way even, yes, to today. Whether with little or much, whether high or low, and everything in between, whether in global pandemic or out of global pandemic, whatever circumstance, whatever situation, COVID or not, we can be content. We can learn the lesson of contentedness. And then verse 13. We know verse 13, don't we? This is the one you placard around your house, the one you put on t-shirts, right? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, it's unfortunate that this verse is often ripped from its given context and utilized as some kind of charm in order to make me Superman. But the strength that is promised here begins again with that recognition that in and of myself I am wholly inadequate. Our strength, our power is entirely inadequate. Paul, this is what he's saying. That his strength is entirely inadequate and he must find his strength for work, for life in Christ. One writer put it this way, it is not in any native ability which Paul had. It is not in any vigor of body or mind. It is not in any power which there was in his own resolutions. It was in the strength that he derived from the Redeemer. And so, therefore, in every circumstance and situation, the Lord was empowering Paul. Or, I mean, that's what he says. He, uh, through him who strengthens me, this is personal, deeply personal, in the inner being, even by spirit, that is how Paul could be adequate for every situation. This is a theme that runs elsewhere in Paul's writing. 
from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 1.12 says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointed me to His service. Did you hear it? I thank Him who has given me strength. You hear it again and again. This source of strength does not originate in Paul. It is the power and strength of Christ that is accentuated here. Paul wants to get himself out of the way and exalt Christ, allow Christ to be seen. And so, yes, God provides strength through Christ for His people. And that's the thing. This is specific. This is, this is not for everyone. Not everyone knows this secret. It's, it's one of those texts that's it's a family secret, as it were. That this is specific for Christians. Jesus Himself says in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And so we need to be in Christ in order to access this family secret. Now to the world, this is folly. But for us, this is a profound promise from our God in Christ Jesus. This is the secret of contentedness that Paul had learned, that he had come to know, and that he sought to impart not only to the church in Philippi, but to us today. The church here in America in the 21st century. He goes on now in verses 14 through 19 to explain that God provides for needs from the church. That one of the means that God utilizes is His church. You see, God had used the Philippian church to meet Paul's needs. Although in all things he's content, although in all things he is capable to Christ, Paul does not want his the gift that they had gave him was unwelcome or unwanted. Paul, his typical modus operandi was not to burden church uh, to, to burden churches with monetary support or or to, to call upon them to support him monetarily. This is why he was a tent maker. Talks about this uh, in scripture elsewhere. He had a right to earn a living by the gospel. He says as much in some of his other writings, but he didn't avail himself of that right. And so, verse 17, he says, look, I, I, I'm not seeking the gift. What I'm seeking is the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul doesn't want to be misunderstood by the, the, the Philippian Christians. He's not prodding them for more money. Hey, come on, if you could spare a little more dough here, that'd be great. That's not what he's after. His desire is for spiritual fruit on their behalf to increase in their account, as it were. That's what he's after. And that's really what it is about. Notice how he talks about the gift in verse 18. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering. Now, your translation may say a sweet-smelling aroma. That's good, too. All of this is deeply rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So that's the kind of language that was used for the sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 1, just start reading and you'll run into it in verse 9, verse 13, verse 17 and on. How the, the burnt offering was a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And that's the language Paul uses here to talk about the sweetness of their offering 
the, the monetary contribution they had given to Paul. We see that the Philippians, in their contribution, that was an act of worship. And I say to each one of us, it may look different now, thanks to COVID, where we have the boxes on the wall, but when you contribute, when you give to the Lord, because that's ultimately who you're giving to, it is still a fragrant offering, a pleasing aroma to God. It's an act of worship. And the God of heaven, He takes pleasure in it. You ever think about that when you now drop your contribution in the box? It's, it's as if an, an aroma is going up to heaven and is filling the nostrils of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That it is a pleasing aroma to our God. That when we contribute to the ministry or, or to missions or, or whatever it is we contribute to in the body, that when we do that, we are engaging in a sacred sacrifice. That's what Paul is saying here. And it's, on the one hand, certainly meeting needs for others. But on the other hand, it is ultimately a sacrifice and a pleasing aroma to God. Now, verse 19, Paul turns his attention from himself and he puts it squarely on the Philippians. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, even as Paul's needs had been met by God through his Philippian brethren, in the same way, every need of the Philippians would be met by God. Again, in Paul's case, it had been through the agency of the church that God had met th those needs. How God would meet the needs of the Philippians is not specifically stated here, but it makes no difference. Paul is emphatic. God will do it. God, not may, perhaps might, He will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need would be met. Physically, certainly. But the riches in glory in Christ Every spiritual need will be especially met through Christ. And it is according to the glorious riches of Christ that those needs would be met. And in a similar way, brothers and sisters, God will meet our needs. You may have heard it put, He'll, he'll supply your needs, not your greeds, right? But He will meet the needs. The, the God who met the needs of Paul the God who met the needs of the Philippians is the same God who will meet our needs. In fact, we've got a whole Bible full of examples where God is the one who meets the needs of His people. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The one who made promises to the patriarch and then saw, went about seeking to fulfill each of those promises. And He did. God is the God of Moses and the people of Israel. How God fulfilled those prophecies as well. Bringing His people out of Egypt. Crossing the Red Sea. Providing for them for the 40 years that they're wandering in the wilderness. Ultimately bringing them into the promised land. We see the sustaining power of God and the provision of God all along the way. Even when, as Buddy pointed out Thursday night in the broadcast, they griped every step of the way. Sound familiar? 
No wonder Paul has to say earlier to do all things without grumbling and complaining. Sometimes the Lord provides through means. Sometimes He'll supply through direct agency. But as the Creator, all of creation is His to do with as He deems fit. And He uses that creation in order to meet the needs of His people. We also know Christ is head of the church, but He's also head over all things, Lord of all things, to the church. And so He does supply our needs to His eternal glory. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying to go take your wallet and throw it in the river so you can live by faith, right? That's not it. God expects us to be good and wise stewards of the good and gracious gifts He's provided us. We need to understand Christ is Lord, and He who promised is faithful. And so God, He does provide for the needs of His church and even from the church. These last few verses, I mean, they're the concluding verses, and often we read right past them. We miss some profound lessons if we do that. We usually want to dive into the meat, right, and grab hold of those 413 verses, right? I can do all things through Christ. And we miss verses 20 through 23. But here these verses, they teach that God provides grace for His church. Grace. The grace of God. Now first it begins with God being glorified. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory typically has to do with the beauty and perfection of God which makes Him worthy of praise. And so Paul emphasizes here glory to the Father. But as we usually typically conclude our, our services, glory not only belongs to the Father, but to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, the whole Godhead, the whole triune God to be glorified in all things. And here's one of those verses which emphasizes the glory of God. It begins with the glory of God. We do have some greetings here. And again, very key insight here concerning the nature of things. Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Then he turns around and says, all the saints greet you. All saints, by the way, are in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are saints. There are some who do recognize St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Luke, St. John, and all the rest, yes? In reality, though, based on what Paul writes... There are no special classes of Christians where there's the laity, and then there are those who have attained to sainthood. Rather, we are all saints in Christ Jesus. We are all the holy ones set apart by God for His good works. Now, we may not always feel saintly, but we are saints. And we are to live up to that high and holy calling. We remain God's set-apart ones, because that's what it means to be a saint. Finally, here's the grace, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This book began with grace. Two, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here it is again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It begins and ends with grace. And isn't that the way the Christian life works? It begins and ends with grace. It is all of the grace of God. 
here, the emphasis is on the unmerited favor of Christ. And, and Paul is invoking that as, as a benediction upon the church. And notice, be with your spirit. It is singular. Be with your spirit. The grace of Christ reaches into the very inner being of the church. The truth of divine unmerited favor flowing from Christ into His body that serves as the capstone of this book. The final concluding reason as to why we can experience joy regardless of circumstances and situations. It was true for the church in Philippi, brothers and sisters, it is true for us today as well. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit as well. So God, He has provided richly, generously, overwhelmingly for His church. And He's done it through Christ. He continues to do it even to today. But He's provided also for the greatest need that we have in Christ Jesus, and that is the need of salvation. He's done it through Christ in the Gospel. That the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, not only determined to create, but also determined that the Father would send the Son into the world. The Son would come willingly, take on human nature, live among us, live a sinless perfect life that we could never live and live that life on our behalf. All of it culminating in His death, the death of the Son on the cross. Not for His own sins, for your sins and mine. And then that the Son would ascend to the Father's right hand and the, the Father and the Son would then send the Spirit to apply the completed work of Christ to the ones believing to the faithful, to the saints. And all of this work determined even beforehand in eternity, culminating in the end of time and in the self-glorification of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit through the work that they've accomplished through this people, through the church. That in our glorification one day, that would be for the self-glorification of the Godhead. You see, it is true that God has provided for our greatest need in Christ. Our greatest need being salvation from our sins. And He has taken it upon Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit to see to it that His glorious purposes are accomplished not only in time and space, but from eternity to eternity. And then He invites us be a part of that. He invites us to find the joy of our salvation. The joy of the salvation that God has accomplished in the completed work of Christ. It is impressive. It is breathtaking and the appropriate response, brothers and sisters, is humble gratitude and worship of our all-powerful God.
Let us commit this to prayer. Almighty Father, we stand in awe of your provision that you have and continue to provide us with strength through Christ, that you continue to provide for our needs and you have provided your grace. We pray, Father, that in humble recognition we would adore you for who you are for what you continue to do. Glory to the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and forever and to the ages of ages, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.